turn to 2 Timothy. We'll be in verses 8 through 11. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. When my mom passed away uh, about 20 years ago, we were helping dad move from Tyler to down to San Antonio to be with my wife and I and helping him get in his new house. We were going through all the records and stuff. He was trying to reorganize everything. And he found his birth certificate. He had not seen it, and I don't think he'd ever seen it. And what made it interesting was we celebrated my dad's birthday on October the 6th, my whole life. Well, he found out his birthday was October the 7th. So he then went into two days of celebration. And then when he got to his 80s, he just made it a week. So I told my wife, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm learning from my dad. So I went, bought tickets to see the Rangers play on Tuesday. Some of you were there. You were texting me from seats. Wasn't it a great game? It's one of the best ones I've been to in a long time. My Astros won. I'm celebrating in orange today. We nearly had a fight in front of me, row right in front of me. One of the Ranger fans just lost it. He, they were getting beat so bad, he just was screaming at the Astro fans. and you know, He had a little too much to drink, and it got, it got crazy. But when Altuve hit home run number three and five out of his last six times at bat against the Ranger, he just sat down and just put his hands in his head and never got up again. So I was happy he wasn't. So... But anyway, I, 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 I told my wife's going to come with me next week to, so she can hear what a 70-year-old preacher sounds like. So she said she'd come join me next week for worship service. All right. To the Greenville Christian School football players, I empathize with you. I heard what happened. And if you know what happened to you, it happened to us. We lost at halftime by four points. The other team left the field and went to the bus and waited out the storm until they had to cancel the game, wouldn't come back. It got to be quite an interesting thing. So I empathize. I understand what happened to you. It happened to us. So we had a great game, though, so we're looking forward to the rest of the season. I will say this. My grandson, who I baptized, scored his first touchdown. And I already had a bet with him, or not a bet, because I wouldn't get anything out of it. If he got in the end zone with a touchdown, I'd buy him a hamburger anywhere in in, uh, Fort Worth. And so he scored his first touchdown Saturday morning. And my wife and them were way up in the stands. We have a big stadium, and they were up in the stands, and they heard him even. As he came running off the field, he's screaming, Whataburger. <laughs> so I, tonight, if you wonder where's the preacher, what's he doing this evening, I will be at Whataburger with our Tim getting him a triple burger, he said. <laughs> All right. I want to get into this. If I have a passion for anything, it's this verse, especially verse 8. And I'm not so certain it might not become a passion of yours somewhere down the road. Uh, We live in interesting days. And one of the things that is always stuck in the back of my head is Luke 9, 26. Jesus said in Luke, Whoever's ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him when I come. As a young preacher, when I first started, that verse struck me early, and I, I never wanted to not be but what he wanted me to be. And it's not always easy. Well, wh- why would we ever be ashamed of this, of our, what happened? Well, sometimes you hit moments like Martin Luther did in 1521. Do you know what happened to him in 1521? He was just an Augustinian monk struggling with his own life of not being able to get it together. 
He was brilliant when it came to the scriptures, but he didn't understand them. And what he did, it ate his heart and soul out. And if you've ever studied his life, he went through agony because he was so afraid of a holy God, and he knew what his life was like. And in the Catholic Church of his day, if you just did some penance and some works and climbed up the steps and kissed each step there in Rome, that would buy you into to heaven or buy you some time out of purgatory. He anguished over that. Until one day he's reading, and his salvation experience was like my grandson's a few a couple months ago. When he's just sitting there reading the scripture, and all of a sudden it came alive for him. Romans 1.17, he's reading it, and then he saw the righteous live by faith. And he realized at that particular moment that the only way you could get your life right with God is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And it radically transformed this Augustinian monk's life. Now, was he looking for trouble? Did he want to do anything other than just be a good teacher? No, that's all he intended to do. And he began to, to, to preach and teach from that. And he began to have a following because it struck a chord with the people because they were tired of the work-oriented type of religious stuff they were hearing and people were coming. Well, it brought the forces of the world against him. And in 1521, they brought him before all the rulers of Europe. And they stood him in front of everybody and they piled the table with his writings and his books. And here's a quiet young man, Augustinian monk, who just loved the Lord, loved teaching the scripture, just trying to live a good life. And now he's standing for the powers of the world. He never saw it coming. And they looked at him and says, recant everything here. Everything you've written, recant. You and I have never quite had a moment like that where everything that we hold dear is being challenged under the threat of death. You know what Luther did standing there? He literally wrote that his knees were knocking, hitting together. Total fear. Never in his wildest imagination did he find himself in this moment, and yet here he was. He asked for 24 hours to consider. 24 hours. They take him to the tower of the castle that he's at, lock him up in a room, and he sat there in anguish and tears, crying out to God, I don't know what to do, help. The next morning he gets up, did not sleep well, but he gets up, he walks in there, and he said this, looking around the room at the most powerful men of the world, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against my conscience is neither right nor is it safe. God, help me. Amen. You and I can't even fathom the amount of courage and bravery it took for him to say those words. But in one sense, to him, it wouldn't have been courageous. He just spoke his heart. They were going to kill him. It took his friends who were willing to stand with him. Very few of us ever get this moment where we will be the ones who stand. But why this is a passion to me is because I've got to be with some of the people who do this. And the question now becomes that I want to address to you today is, would you have had the courage to stand with Luther? Would you have walked with him after this moment? Timothy's got to face that issue now. You know, a lot of times you think you get it to be in the ministry and get on staff or preacher, and it's, it's a fun job, and all we do is work one day a week. Now, literally, that's all I do for you guys right now. But that's what you think a pastor sometimes does. It's one day a week. 
Sometimes this is one of the most difficult jobs. I don't go to Fox News today and read about Max Lucado. I know him. I was down the street from him in San Antonio. He has an interesting article today about his own life, the pressures of being pastor of Oak Hills, and the toll it took on him to destroy his health, the toll it took on him that led him to drink a drinking problem, how he had a come-to-Jesus moment and realized that what Paul was saying here was so true, it was unbelievable, and it brought about a radical, even, transformation in the famous author, the famous preacher of San Antonio. Another friend of mine passed the largest church in San Antonio, ran 15,000 on Sunday. He retired at 57, worn out, tired, didn't even know his staff, was tired of uh, the attacks of staff against staff. He was tired of church members fighting church members. He didn't know anybody he could. He'd walk into church and didn't know a soul out of the 15,000, so he retired. He walked away from it. He is now pastor in a little church in, our, in Colorado, having a blast, back doing what he always wanted to do and minister. Sometimes you forget how influential all the pressures of the world coming in on us hit so hard. That's what's happening here. And Timothy's got to make a decision. It's going to define him for the rest of his life. Will he stand with Paul or will he walk away? Stand with me as we read. And again, I speak from a passion from this because I've seen what people do when they're around people who become the lightning rods for the faith. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. So I'm going to, I preach with a passion when I see this because I've been in this, I've seen it, I know how it unfolds. So I'm speaking more from commentaries today. I'm going to speak from the heart of having seen what I saw on a national level. And I'm going to challenge you to be willing to stand with each other for the truth of the gospel of who Jesus Christ is. We have been given the greatest gift in all the world. Timothy has to make a decision. And what he does, we know, but he has to make that call. Here's what the scripture says. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But Timothy, you join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Didn't do it according to our works, but according to his purposes and his grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And it has been revealed to us by the appearing, the epiphany of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who he abolished death, brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And so he says, the young man, I, you need to know something. I was appointed. I was put here by God. I'm a preacher. I'm an apostle. And I'm a teacher. Fathers, we look at verses 8 and 9 today. Speak to us clearly. Give us the kind of strength and courage that Timothy's going to have to have to be able to do what he's got to do in the days ahead as Paul makes this challenge to him. Help us, Father, to be the kind of men and women you've called us to be, that we strive each day to try to be the kind of, to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness by simply putting our faith and trust in you, that you will take care of us, that we can entrust ourselves to you, and you will watch over us, and you will provide for us, and you will take care of us. So, Father, speak to us clearly today as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are coming to a day in America where you've got to make a decision. And I think the decision is, are you going to be able to say, I am not ashamed of what I believe? Paul says that in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. When Paul writes Timothy right here, that's what he tells him. And as I stated a moment ago, the pressures of ministry are unbelievably difficult. 
For Timothy, the pressures have to be unbelievably strong. For Paul to even have to challenge him in this. You know, when you read these verses sometimes, try to stop sometimes and think, what, what might be going on? What's he facing? What's he going through? Too often we just read it, it's just a story, but we never think about the underlying pressures and Timothy is facing because Paul is now in jail. Timothy has not folded yet, but I think he's feeling the pressures twofold, the pressures to pull back. That's why Paul is addressing this. You know what's happened to Paul at this moment? In verse 15, he's going to tell you. In verse 15, he's going to say that two of the men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they've abandoned me, they've turned away. But he also adds in verse 15 of this first chapter, everybody's turned away from me. Now, where's Paul when he writes it? He's in Rome. He's in prison in Rome. Timothy is in Ephesus there at the church. People have now turned against Paul. Timothy living in Ephesus. What's happening to him? People are talking to him. How can you stand with Paul? How can you be with Paul? He is in jail. Chapter 2, verse 10, Paul will say to Timothy, I'm in jail as a criminal. He's in jail for preaching the gospel, but he's been now thrown in jail and he's viewed as a criminal. Paul's reputation is being shot to shreds. And Timothy's facing the pressure. In fact, Paul's going to say, about the only one who stayed with me is Onesiphorus. He's not ashamed of my chains. Timothy, would you join in? Let me back up a moment and say this. I'm like you. Everyone here wants a Christianity with no trouble. I just want to get up and do my devotional in the morning. In fact, if I didn't know how, how good retirement is, I would have retired earlier. I get to coach. I get to preach. I get to get up late in the morning, drink coffee all morning. I get to do devotionals and study and not have to worry about producing and writing over and over again. I go play with the grandkids, go eat hamburgers with them, do all that kind of That's fun. I like that. I want the same life you do, just quiet and easy and good, but it's not that way. There's no such thing as a Christianity with no troubles. You know, the trouble is, it's a fantasy. I just want a good, peaceful, quiet life. Just let me go get in the corner and not have to face anything in life. Let's just live quietly. But ever so often, even if you want to be the one who lives in quietness, someone around you may face the difficulties like Paul did in Lystra. So when Paul's in Lystra, he's been preaching. The crowds have thought it was amazing. They called him a god because he had such an amazing speaking voice and message that he was doing that they just were astounded by what's going on. Paul never considered himself a great speaker, but evidently they did. And they, the, he and Barnabas were being uplifted. But before long, the crowds turned against them, and they stoned him. I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures or anything of persons going through that. It's horrific. It's one of the most horrible ways to die. It's an unbelievable thing to have to see happen to somebody. And he was stoned. I always was amazed what Paul did. He left Lister. He goes to Derby, 60 miles. You walk 60 miles after having your body broken by people. But he went 60 miles, recovered from that. And you know what he did? He turned around and went right back to Lystra. And he walked into that city and he said this, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Through many, to the people who stoned him, he came back and said, Christ is real, my faith is strong, and it's not always easy. It is tough sometimes, but it's through those toughness we enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it had to be one of the greatest messages he may have ever preached at that particular moment. You know, we want it easy, 
What happens when our closest person next to us is taking seriously his faith at work, in a school system, or at a business, and suddenly the pressures of, his cult, of the culture have hit him, and now his job's on the line, and you begin to watch what people do. They begin to back off. If you know who Coach Kennedy is, he made national news this last week again. He's the coach who would bow a knee in prayer, and they fired him, destroyed his very successful career in the Northwest. He won in the Supreme Court, but he has also lost. They gave him his job back at the school district, and they so ostracized him, nobody would stand around him, nobody wanted to do anything because he takes faith in Christ so seriously. He got fired for praying. Just a week ago, I knelt down with the players uh, at um, Coolidge, a public school, and Thesa, and we knelt on the ground at the end of the game, and we gave praise to Jesus Christ. One of the players for Coolidge prayed the greatest prayer I've ever heard a high school kid ever pray. Public school setting, and we got up, shook hands, hugged each other, walked off the field after a great contest of football. He lost his job over it. I know the story. I know the, because Hiram Sasser is his lawyer, I know what happened. You know what happened to a lot of his friends? Don't want more to do with you. You can't take a chance. You're a lightning rod. Guys, this is why this is a passion of mine. I've been the lightning rod. I know what it feels like. I'm friends with the lightning rods across America, literally. I've watched. I've watched. It's tough. It's unbelievably tough because people are afraid to come around them. We've had conversations in the middle of the night over this. Literally, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning with Sergeant Monk. Why is everybody scared of me? Why is everybody backing off? What have I done? All he had done was held to a faith that Christ is the answer, but it cost him his job. Paul's facing that. And you know, you, you guys, a lot of times are going to sit there and think, well, you know, I'm not ever going to be the news story. Do you realize every news story you ever pick up ever so often about somebody who is losing their job or losing this or that because of their faith in Christ? They saw it exactly like you did. They weren't looking for trouble. They weren't trying to cause trouble. But somebody found them and came after them and begin to attack them. And then you're getting attacked by the world and those who are around you. There's a family from Iowa who lost their job because of their faith in Christ. This story goes in 2013. I've had dinner with them. You know what broke my heart more about them losing their job? was Because uh, I understood that. Was that their church kicked them out. They removed them. I found out later they were one of the finest people you'll ever meet in your life. But the church didn't want to be a public knowledge that they would make a stand for the gospel. So that's why this stuff's a passion to me. So here's Paul to Timothy. Young man, I don't want you to be ashamed. But notice what he says first. Because you're going to think, well, what I'm going to say is, I don't want you to be ashamed of this person standing next to you. No, that's not what he says first. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. That's the driving factor. That is the driving factor right here. Do you, sitting here in Greenville Ridgecrest Baptist Church this day, do you deeply believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to all the problems of the world? Do you believe that he's the only way to heaven? Do you believe that he loves you with an everlasting love? Do you hold to that testimony as real? That's a decision you make. That's a decision you have to live with. Paul's telling Timothy, I'm not just telling you stand with me. I'm the one right, they're all wrong. 
Timothy, you look at what you believe and you make your decision. What do you believe? Because Paul knew something. Paul knew that if he truly held on to the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, this young man who was greatly influenced by his mother and his grandmother who came to Christ, that if he did that, he would use that gift that has been given of eternal life, he would weigh it in a very correct way, and he'd make a right decision. I need to stand with Paul, or I don't need to stand with Paul. But he, Paul to Timothy, goes, young man, do you believe? Remember Jesus' words I started with, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. He's at a moment like that. Do you believe? Do not underestimate the pressure and stress on the man. If I go back to the first chapter, you already know in the fifth chapter, our first letter in the fifth chapter, what does Paul tell Timothy? I need you to take a little wine for your stomach. I said that last week. That's because of stress, the pressures of all that he was under. That was what Lucato says today in his article on Fox News when he writes. It was just the stress and the pressure that led him to, to develop in a problem with alcohol because he needed the break. That's what Paul's challenging Timothy with. Stress is real. But Paul's writing from prison, make your decision. Are you ashamed of the testimony of Jesus? Or are you not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus? So that's what he says in 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, and now of me, his prisoner. Now, Paul knows that if Timothy makes the right decision, he'll look and evaluate correctly. This man is correct. I will tell you that when I decided to stand with Sergeant Philip Monk when he lost his job because he would not agree with his lesbian commander of, in the Air Force with her view of Christianity and of marriage, I had to make a decision in the middle of the night one night. Do I stay with him? Because, guys, when you take a stand like that, it is not easy. It is not easy at all. And in the middle of the night, I came to a conclusion. And when I met with a four-star general in my office to discuss this, here's what I told him. I told their staff, I have been around this man for several years. I have seen him in church. I know his wife. I know his kids. He is a good man. He's not a troublemaker. He has a deep faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm here to help him. And I am not backing off. When nobody else would stand with him, I told him, I'm here, and I will be with you. That's not easy, and that's what Timothy is doing. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony, but don't be ashamed of me. I know I'm a prisoner. I know I'm called a criminal. I know that people are attacking my name because of all that. But young man, you evaluate, and if I am who I say I am, then you join with me. Literally, in verse 8, when it says, join with me, Join with me in suffering. It means to sit down together. True believers will walk with other believers through the most difficult of times. And you will be by your friend's side. That's what Timothy decides to do. It is life's not going to be easy for him. It's going to be difficult. But he makes the decision, I'm going to walk with Timothy. I'm going to walk with Paul. So here's my question to you it's, because I want to get to a real reason underneath all of this. What is your attitude towards the gospel? Especially in the culture we're living in today. What is your attitude towards those who take it serious? What is your attitude towards those who suffer the brunt of, of the 
suffering in the ministry. See, you may never be the one who's the new story, but you may be the one who supports the person who needs support like you can't imagine. And would you be there? I will tell you that my church made a t-shirt for Monk and I. We had our own t-shirts at the church, and it said this, Preacher, Sergeant Monk, we got your back. When you turn around, he said, we're way back there. That was a joke because our church, my church did well during those days. They stood with both of us all the way through the whole thing. But they knew what we knew. I was with Riley Gaines. I told you that a few months, a couple months ago. I was with her. And she looked at me and said, preacher, why will nobody stand with me? Why would I stand to defend women and defend women in sports and defend them against the evil that's going on that church members and others want nothing to do with me? I said, well, welcome to the club and don't be shocked by it. Most people will not stand with you because it might cost them something. So let me bring it to here, though, because here's what I think is so important. I can do this kind of stuff, but what would make me do this? What would make me hang in there if I'm the story or if I'm the support to the story? Well, if I look at verse 9, I learn something because it really comes down to, why should I care about any of this stuff? Why should I even care? Why, why don't I just come to church on Sunday, sing a few songs, shake hands and talk and laugh with my friends, talk about Friday night football, talk about this, talk about that, whatever it is, go home, get a good meal at the restaurant or something, enjoy my Sunday afternoon rest and all of that. Why should I even worry about any of this? Well, look what he says in 9. Paul unfolds our salvation because when it comes down to it, those who are going to live the life that God's called us to live in the midst of the world in which we're going to live, it's going to come down on the basis of what God has done in your life and in my life. So what Paul begins to do is unfold our salvation. Look what he says in verse 9. He saved us. He saved us from what? He saved us from death, eternal death. You know what that is. That's hell. Wages of sin is death. And most of the world is heading that direction. Jesus is very clear. The way is broad that leads to destruction. Many are those who enter through it. In fact, Paul told the church at Ephesus, we looked at that when we were going through uh, the book of Ephesians, we were all children of wrath. We all would face the complete judgment of God because of what's wrong and the brokenness within our lives. But yet God reached down and he saved us. He did me when I was 20. You have your testimony of when you came to Christ, but God reached down and gave you life. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. He made you alive. He did the work. He made it unfold. Then notice what it says. He not only saved us, but he called us with a holy calling. You didn't call him. He called you. It's a holy calling. It's far different than anything else you've ever experienced in your life. And it's a call to holiness to walk in moral purity, to walk in righteousness, to walk in a way that demonstrates the very presence of God within our lives. He called us first. It was special. It was an irresistible calling. Romans says the gift and the calling of our Lords are irrevocable. You and I were given the gift of salvation, and God reached down and called us to his kingdom. That makes you unique that makes you special. It ought to give you the strength and courage to be able to live life like you've never lived it before. And then you could raise this question. It did in me when I came to Christ. Why me? Why did I find this? I could ask, why you? Why did God call us and save us? 
I'm an East Texas boy, Southeast Texas, the bios. Family not that influential except in the little town in which we lived in. No great heritage behind us of accomplishments among the Branson family. Some were preachers, some were businessmen, the group, uh, the generations, couple, three, four me, refinery workers. We just average people living on the bios, enjoying the weather of humidity and heat in southeast Texas with the mosquitoes. That's just life. And yet God found this kid when I'm in southeast Texas and he calls me into his kingdom. What does Paul tell Timothy there? Why did God save him? According to God's purposes. It was based on God's purpose. See, it's God at work in you, Philippians says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's had a purpose in your life. That's why he called you into his kingdom. I mean, this raises all kinds of questions, and I have very few answers at this point, because there's the providence and sovereignty of God, and there's a mystery involved in everything that comes to him. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But yet he had a purpose that he has called you into. And you're getting the chance now to live out that purpose. But I want you to know, not only call according to his purpose, but look at verse 9. According to his grace. There's not a person in this room from me all the way down that deserves all the blessings of heaven. He's the one who simply gave us his son, and his son gave us life according to John 6 and John 17. We know from Ephesians 2, it's not of works. There's nothing you've done to merit God's purpose, nor his favor, nor his grace. No amount of works can make up for the rebellion that was in your heart. No amount of works could change your heart to be the heart of stone, to be a heart that's been changed dramatically by the very presence of God. In fact, all that kind of works, all it does is lead to boasting and arrogance. And people who would do that would be ashamed of Paul. But those who stop and go, I have no idea why I'm here other than God, you love me. Your purposes were fulfilled. You showed me grace when I did not deserve any amount of grace at all. One of my good friends, her husband died this weekend in San Antonio. She and I have been texting back and forth. One of my friends in ministry, he's my age. He's now brain dead and his family's been texting me. And so we've been talking back and forth all week long. And it, 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 you know what some of our conversations gone back to? Just the grace of God to get us through. That God has purposes. You know, when I do verse 8, because it's a passion in my heart, because the road I've had to walk in life, but where our passion really has to be is not 8, it has to be a 9. That God forgave Steve Branson of the ungodliness of his heart. He took a young man at the age of 20 who was broken by his pride and his arrogance, his selfishness, and yet somehow, way, he opened my eyes to be able to see Jesus. I will be eternally grateful for that. And it has been a passion of mine ever since to try to be halfway decent 
to overcome all the weaknesses and frailties of my own life, to try to be able to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. And it's not an easy road. But my motivation for ministry has been that God loved me, and I don't understand why, but he did. God loved you, and he's given you life. And do you know what eternal life really is? Just knowing him. John 17, 3 says, for this is eternal life, that you know, the, know, you know God the Father and you know Jesus Christ. The greatest gift he's ever given us is he's given us a little bit of insight into who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. And all he wants out of us is to be able to say, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of somebody who has been willing to do that for me. If somebody, when you're at home today, Somebody stops at your house. Says, you know, I've just, been, I've just been wanting to do this. Been thinking about it. I, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, your house, your mortgage is paid for. And more important than that, your taxes for the next 30 years are paid for. That'd be more important to me than the house being paid for. And your cars are paid for. And yeah, you run up too much credit, car debt, so I've paid that off. What would be your reaction? And then let's just top it off, $100,000 a month deposited into your account. 100000 Most of us could live all right on 100000 a month coming into our account. <laughs> some people can't, but some of us could. Would you be excited? Yeah. But you can have all the money in the world. It won't make you happy. And it won't give you any more courage. Let you do your whims. In fact, most of us would probably go so crazy we'd buy a $10 million home and then get our taxes back because we'd go crazy with it and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Too often we lived in the presence of what the world has to offer. Do you not realize that you're richer because of what Christ has done for you than you'll ever be if somebody walked into you and gave you all that today? You have been created by the creator of the universe. He found you. He called you into his kingdom. He saved you by his grace. He gave you life. He gives you the ability to know him. And you are immeasurably, unfathomably rich. How could we ever be ashamed when we have been gifted that much by him? And when our friend next to us gets caught up in the culture and the world pressures and they come after him because he holds the same views you do, you're willing to say, I know he's not a perfect man, but he's a good man or a good woman, and I'm willing to stand right next to him. I am not ashamed of Jesus, and I'm not ashamed of my friend. That's the call that Timothy had to make. But it leads me to one last thought. How do we know any of this is true? What if it's just a, a preacher who can make it sound good on a Sunday morning? And then, but how do I know it's true? How do I know it's real? So Paul gives him the answer in verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. The word appearing is epiphany. You've heard that word. Jesus is a historical fact. He is a historical person. He is real. We're not just doing some fancy little story. We're, God came down on this earth. He walked this earth. And the Apostle John recorded this. What it was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's real. Paul's telling Timothy, you know how you know this is real? Because Christ is real. He came. 
We're here to tell you the facts he did. And what did he accomplish? He abolished death. Now, we still face death, but he's talking about second death. He's abolished death. And he has done what? He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The world has lived in such darkness. Death has ruled throughout the centuries. Christ came in, tore all that down, broke it apart, ripped the veil apart in the temple, brought salvation so that those who believe who Jesus is, trust in him, no longer are impacted by the death, but they are now impacted by life and immortality. And you live that way. I had a conversation with my dad one night while he was fairly lucid through the last couple years of his life. He always knew me, but his dementia had gotten really tough. And we would have interesting conversations ever so often. But about a third of the time, he was sharp as he was through his entire life. And so we had a conversation one day. He said, son... I'm ready to go. I'm tired. But I'm, I'm ready to go. I want to see Wilma. That was my mom. She had been gone for about 18 years. Died 18 years earlier than Dad did. But I'm just ready. I want to see my Lord. And I want to go home. I'm not fearful of death. I always kind of was wondering what it would be like. But I'm not. We sat and talked. It wasn't a preacher and a church member. It was a dad and his son. Just having a simple conversation. Do you know how blessed we are to know that when this is over with, we have a home? We have a home. Steve Branson literally cannot go home ever again. My home in Orange belongs to other people. Bought it many years ago. I can't even go back to southeast Texas and walk around because everybody I know is gone. All the Branson family is, is gone. They've died. The years have passed, and there's nobody left in Port Arthur where we're from. So I cannot one sense go home. Jan, my wife, is one of the few people I know who could go home. Her home in White Settlement on 404 Russell Street was in the family till just a couple months ago till we sold it. But now she can no longer go home. We stopped by it the other day to just look at it one last time. But she can't walk through the doors anymore. She can't unlock it and say, hey, Dad, I'm here. It's not hers anymore. But though both of us have now lost our home many, many, many years ago, and her in the last few months, we haven't lost our home. Our home is in heaven been revealed to us by Jesus Christ who's given us life. And because of that, it gives me the strength and the courage to live. And it did my dad. I saw it. I have sat with so many people as they breathe their last. And I've seen in the most amazing ways God bringing people home. It is real. I've seen it. I know the presence of what truth does. Paul's looking at Timothy. Yes, life's tough. Yes, the stress right now about kill you. I know you're scared, young man. World forces coming against you right now. Ephesus is not a good place to be. But son, our God has never abandoned us. He has never left us. He has given us life. 
He's the one who called us into this. He's the one who's graced us. He's the one who's gifted us. He's the one who gave us a holy calling. Young man, join hands with me, and let's finish this life together. Let's walk together. See, that's my challenge to you, living in America in the day in which we live in. There's no telling what direction everything goes in the days ahead. It's as wacko crazy as I've ever seen it in my entire life. But this much I know. I know the one who sits on the throne. I know the one who gives life eternal. I know the one who's watching over Steve and Jan and my three kids and my eight grandkids. I'm all right. And I know it's going to be okay, no matter how tough it might get. Because one of these days, we're going to walk in his presence. And all I want to do is to say here, good job. When our Tim ran off the football field after scoring his touchdown, and he's screaming Whataburger, he ran and jumped in my arms, gave him a big old hug. He got to do something I never got to do in high school, score a touchdown. He was so excited, and all he wanted was a pop-up to say, isn't this good? And I said, way to go, young man. You did well. That's good to hear pop-pop to grandson. But even better is the Father in heaven to say to us, good job. Thanks for hanging in with me. Thanks for hanging in with my other people I called in the kingdom. Thank you for what you did. That's awaiting each and every one of us when this life is over with. You know, I don't know how much longer I have. I'll celebrate 70 this week. I don't know why I came so fast. I'm serious. I can't fathom that it got here this quick. I mean, I, I, I was getting by the chair, and Jen says, you're looking old. I said, I am. How did we do this? I still want to go full blast. still trying to go full blast. But I know the days are numbered. But that's okay. He's with me. He's taking care of me. And I'm not telling anything you don't know. You know this. I'm just reinforcing what you know in your own life. So you've gotten a holy calling. You've experienced his grace. You enjoy the life, and when the tough times come, stand firm and give him the glory. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor that you give us to study your word. Father, I pray for each person here that you'll give them the courage to stand. It's a tough world in which we live in right now. It's extremely difficult. And most will never go through the real extreme difficulties, but they may have family and friends who do, and give them the courage to stand with them. But help us to understand why we do this. We stand not just because they're our friends, but we stand because of you. We stand because of your grace. We stand because of your mercy. We stand because of your eternal purposes. We stand because of your holy calling. And we stand because of your amazing grace. So, Father, do your work in and through us as our prayer this day. In Jesus' name, amen.